giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And today we're continuing the conversation with Alistair McLean Foreman, the CEO and founder of Takeometrics. Alistair, thanks for joining us again. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm excited to do it again. So this month we're gathering to talk about an important topic and one that's the spotlight that we're going to talk to each of our companies that we're following along with. That's communication and collaboration. And the last time we talked with you, I think we had just gone remote, mm-hmm. uh, just started working from home. It was sort of the beginnings of what would become our current situation. And so since then, there's been a lot of conversation about this sort of in, in the industry, in every industry, how communication and collaboration is being impacted by working remotely. When did Take a Metrics sort of start working from home this year? Yeah, so it was sort of a, an interesting sort of evolution. I think things went pretty quickly shortly after the announcement by the president that the borders were going to be shut down and no flights would come into Europe. And I think that same evening, they mentioned that the NBA was going to be cancelled. At that point, it felt very important to communicate to our team very clearly of what we were going to do. Uh, We actually also looked at the Coinbase protocol. I think Coinbase did a fantastic job of putting out sort of public set of guidelines. I think they even shared it in a Google sheet and it, it later was posted on Medium. And it created a, a sort of set of guiding principles and different degrees of uh, response based on how bad the pandemic would, would impact you know, the people in the US. So we were really fortunate to have sort of latched onto that and in a way copied that. And as I said, we when we heard that there was going to be a widespread shutdown of major major things like the NBA and, and the borders were shutting. We felt that it would be very important to make the call. And our guiding principles have been, number one, keep our employees safe. Number two, maintain a very good service on behalf of our customers. And three, do our part within our team and the community to flatten the curve and do our part in helping others who need the most help get the most help. Um, So we use those three guiding principles all the way through and in a way just kept leaning on them in our all hands meetings and in our communication to our employees. And we're still obviously working remotely. So that's the time frame. How much remote work were you doing prior to the entire company going remote? It's a great question, Chad. I think we were quite lucky because we had started to train that muscle a little bit. We had opened up a small satellite office in a WeWork in Seattle in January because we hired our new chief product officer, Srini Gadanti, from Amazon and hired a product manager and started to build a team in Seattle. So we had a senior executive in Srini already operating remotely from Seattle and actually starting to build a team there. We also have over 30 employees in Bengaluru, India, 
you know, at the start of the year, maybe that was uh, about 10 or 15 people at the most. So we had started to do this, you know, our senior leadership meeting, which is a weekly meeting, would have Srini remote. Uh, I had traveled and spent time in Seattle. So, yes, we had started to get that motion running. Uh, prior to that, we had two developers that were remote, and those were the only members of the team that we had remote last year. And um, I think for that reason, we started with uh, sort of a hybrid anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, the India team has been a real help for us because we were working already through different time zones, uh, the India team on the support side, but also on the product side and engineering side as well. It's been really exciting to sort of lean on that. The first all hands I did after the coronavirus when we were all working at home was a little bit intimidating. Uh, we do an all hands every Monday morning at 10 a.m., and to see, you know, 120 small faces on my monitor in the same room I'm talking to you from right now at home was different. You know, it feels, I'm sure you can appreciate that, Chad. You must have done something similar. And, you know, it's just this interesting leadership opportunity. You know, we've been doing those all hands every week, of course, and then adding more and more on top of that. Is there anything that has been a surprise challenge? I think it's been the opposite, actually. I've been so proud of the team and actually seeing how quickly we've adapted. You know, I was worried about certain teams that you could imagine might need more collaboration, like the sales team, for example, who, you know, there's this sort of intangible value of being in the same room as someone when they're closing deals and whatnot. But we've been really fortunate that that has continued. Now, I think we're also lucky. We're in an industry where, you know, Amazon has really gained traction. A lot of our technology supports Amazon. We've also launched with Walmart and that was only in January. So, you know, US e-commerce was probably at sort of 12% of all of retail sales before coronavirus. And now we're 60, 70, 80, 90% perhaps market share right now. And where is that all coming from? And where is that all going in terms of demand? It's, you know, Amazon, Walmart, and, and the big platforms. And that's exactly what our vision is, that these marketplaces are where supply beats demand and our customers really need us. So it's been a really important time to show leadership and actually amplify our value. And it's you know, sort of rallying cry in the all hands meetings to say, look, our customers really need us now. You know, let's put them first. That's number one, make sure that all the employees are safe. And then number two, let's do a great job for our customers. And I think that's really motivated the team. If you're asking what are the things that have surprised me challenge wise, it is actually the fact that it's tiring. The Zoom fatigue is real. I live slightly outside of Boston. So my previous commutes, you know, when, when I was working in the office, it's probably almost exactly an hour round trips. That's two hours a day commuting. And you would think if you if you take that out of the day, you should have you know more rest, more time. But I've observed that, you know, trying to do, you know, 10, 11 hours back to back on Zoom calls is tiring. And I've been fascinated about the science behind it. You know, the psychology of communication over zoom and actually we've discussed this as a team 
So I think that probably is the most surprising. Uh, there's this sort of strange sort of impact to remote communication. That, that That's one observation. Yeah, I was reading a few articles about that this week myself. Uh, I'm certainly feeling the Zoom fatigue and was, yeah, was kind of confused by it. It wasn't like my, I was having more meetings uh, and have been trying to be mindful of my screen time. And I think a few theories I saw was that like being able to see yourself in a meeting is like takes a lot of your attention and is distracting. And then also mm. kind of monitoring multiple people at the same time can be kind of exhausting. And then there's also this feeling of not allowing sort of any pauses in the conversation, even more so than in a real meeting, because you're like feel wondering if it's like frozen or, you know, what's mm. happening with the, the meeting. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how many of those are scientifically proven, uh, but it was some interesting kind of really different perspectives on why it might be so tiring, because that that is something I'm feeling for sure. Yes, I must have read the same or some of the same articles. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I've too been very fascinated by it. And we actually shared that in the all hands and put up some slides and said, you know, we trust you. Uh, I had one slide up that said, we trust you to maximize your own performance. So the feedback that I'm getting and um, just to kind of summarize some of the collaboration areas is that we're getting a lot of respect as a leadership team from being transparent. We did one meeting where we actually shared our financials and shared the burn rate and then actually confirmed how we were going to move forward in terms of budgeting, whether it's hiring freezes. I announced that I wasn't going to be taking a salary for Q2 and we're all going to be in the same boat. Um, we're going to make no layoffs. Um, but these are the things that we're going to do slightly differently. So that sort of level of transparency on the financial side has been good. And then sort of trying to be as honest as possible about, you know, let's say the Zoom fatigue item, you know, just saying, look, it's real. We, we trust the team to react in the right way. And that, and I sort of created some energy that I, I think is really amazing. We've also used our values. I was working on values as a company or as a CEO project for the company, I should say. And we do have values today, company values, and one of them's empathy and one's ownership. And we've been really leaning on those two. Mm -hmm. um, for example, empathy in a scenario where some of our employees have children and two working parents. You know, that's a really, really tough scenario. Very different to if you're at home and, and single and, you know, without any kids. But that's, you know, also a different challenge. So we've been, I think doing our best to see the positives and trying to amplify them and also recognizing very as quickly as possible transparently the issues. I think that's the best way forward. Do you think that that transparency around financials and, and that kind of thing will continue post-pandemic? Has it influenced the way that you're th thinking about it and working? We've always been like that. We've always had the financials and the, the performance of the company almost on a weekly basis in our all-hands meetings and the, and the slide deck is shared afterwards. And then we've done a quarterly kickoff as well. The quarterly kickoff was the first one we've ever done remotely. 
And in, in that meeting, we actually share a considerable number of slides that are the same slides that we have in our board meeting. So we have always had that key principle about transparency. It was just even more important, mm. I think, probably a month ago when you could feel the layoffs coming and the anxiety. So just to come out and say, look, this is how we forecast. We you know, started with the top line. We're forecasting flat, which is very conservative. I'm not going to take salary as, as the CEO. Some of the executives are, are going to take a cut. We're not going to lay anyone off. This is what our burn rate is. And this is the amount of uh, capital that we have in, in, in the company. So it was a little bit more transparent than normal, mm -hmm. but we've always wanted to be that way. We actually added some other things too. We added an anonymous feedback system in Slack that we've used in sort of town hall meetings or when we've had to address major issues, but we just moved that to always on. And after all, the all hands were asking questions and that's been quite successful. So it's a, it's a sort of trying to continually think about, okay, how can we make it more collaborative? Mm -hmm. How can we be more transparent? How can we get a better feedback loop going with some of these tools? I know at ThoughtBot, we've gotten the question, well, are we just going to stay all remote after this? How does this change the way that we look at that? And what I, what I felt was it's really difficult to know in this time of crisis what six months or a year looks like for us. But I can sense that things certainly won't be exactly the same, that we've learned things about how we can work together remotely and that, that sort of thing. Do you think that there's any lasting effects for Takeometrics in terms of what you've learned and how it might change how, how you view remote work in the future? Absolutely. I think there's two parts to sort of listening to what you're saying. And it's, it's fun to be able to exchange notes with you in this, in this chat, Chad. I, I think the first one is, what are we going to do right now? Meaning, what are we going to do in 2020? As we start to see, as we're having this conversation today, of course, you know, the, the you know, CNN and BBC News or whatever news outlet is, is reporting that certain states are back to work today and certain businesses that are open. And you know, I'm being pinged by our commercial realtor saying this is a potential <laughs> protocol to go back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's similar to what happened at the beginning of the crisis where I felt pressure to be very strong in terms of communication and leadership to say, yes, you're going to be asking these questions, but we have the answers. So in last week's All Hands, we said, you know, we know you're going to start to ask these questions and, you know, here are our next steps. And that's when we brought that same slide up that said, you know, the guiding principles, uh, keep the employees safe, maintain performance for our customers and, and do our part. And I think because you've got those guiding principles, the first one's really important, you know, put the employee safety first. So when I'm looking through that lens and seeing the environment we're in today, I'm sort of asking myself and talking to other CEOs as well as data points, are we completely sure that this is safe? Yes, we might be receiving ideas of how to separate our desks in the office, but how will we get up the elevator? Right. Do we have sufficient contact tracing tools? Do we have medical support? And I actually don't think the answer is yes. 
So if you use that first guiding principle, it becomes almost like a risk reward. Would we risk employee safety in exchange for some argument that performance is better in the office? And because we're actually growing now and the team's performed so well remotely, I think as a company, we are going to be more inclined to say that we don't feel pressured to come back to the office. And to your point, the second point I was going to make is, you know, maybe using that philosophy moving forward. You know, maybe maybe there is a, an argument here that we've proven that we've performed very well remotely. I know some of the executives on the team, especially those who have children, you know, work-life balance is important. Thinking to themselves, you know, maybe I only come in, you know, two three times a week um, because I can perform better as an executive remotely and engineers as well who have performed really really well and be very collaborative so I, I i agree with you i think there's well firstly there's short term and then there's you know the, the longer term picture i think will change i know that in you know there's certain companies github and and others that we're all aware of that have very open remote policies so we are thinking about that and I think it depends on how well you're doing and then balancing the risk versus reward. I feel really sorry, genuinely, and we've brought this up in, in the company meetings, we're using the sort of the word empathy, thinking through you know, other industries and even our customers who are selling other products. Like, you know, we spoke to one of my team yesterday, one-on-one, -on -one, just chatted about a seller on Amazon who's selling jewelry. And that's just not possible anymore, or at least the events that people like weddings and such like are, are really on hold. So, you know, we're lucky that we're not impacted in, in that way. Yeah, I think part of especially when you factor in that this is such a difficult time, like it's not normal remote working time. And even then, if it's going well, so, you know, people have the stress of the pandemic, but they also have the stresses of, you know, schooling their kids and that kind of thing. So if it's going well in that scenario, that also points to like, it could be even better in the future when we don't have those additional stresses. I think so. I mean, for me personally as well, you know, my wife's from Hawaii and we, we were actually there in February. I was there for three weeks. I was, you know, waking up early in the morning to do my regular calls and, it's, you know, it's a tough time zone to be in. Um, but I actually personally feel quite excited about being flexible moving forward. I think it can actually create a level of trust with the team. You know, Srini, our chief product officer, being remote and, 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 and doing a fantastic job so far with the team. It just, it just feels actually quite empowering uh, that you know we've got the capability of being a global team you know, we've got the team in india and i'm actually excited about that possibility on the personal side it's sort of like you know enjoying the idea that i can be an effective ceo whilst being remote i did f start to feel pressure about you know as and, and chad i'm sure you can appreciate this as you grow your your company there is this pressure to be a leader and taking time off if you're the, the person that the team's looking at as the guardian of the team um, does create that, that tie to, to a physical location. Um, but we've been doing the weekly all-hands meetings remotely 
So I think the systems can change. So we've also talked about, well, maybe if we didn't have as much uh, overhead for, for rent, mm-hmm. maybe we could have different policies and stipends for equipment. You know, I bought a sit-stand desk and, you know, a nice monitor and have sort of hooked up a few different webcams. That's a, that's a strange one. It's, it's so interesting to see how bad the webcams are on the <laughs> Apple MacBooks, yeah. which, you know, they're 720 resolution versus what you expect. So there are all these things that I've figured out, but actually saying to the team, well, maybe we, we invest in your home setup. Maybe we even, you know, encourage traveling a bit and just give you better tools. Those would be the things that I think we maybe consider as this changes in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. On the topic of tools down to the specifics, like what tools are using? You've mentioned zoom for video. What other things are you leaning on? So Zoom is obviously, you know, very, very integral one. We, you know, a year ago we were using GoToMeeting and, you know, Zoom, Zoom is obviously turned into a verb at this point and my kids are using it to do, do classes on as I'm sure yours are mm-hmm. too. So Zoom has been a big one. You know, the Google, Google document suite always was big. I think, you know, you can see more of that being used. I've told our executive team to focus more on documentation you know, the one-on-one documents being really, really good at putting those in. And that's more of a, a management style. But I think when you're remote and you you want to maximize performance and make big changes, having things documented helps. So maybe we were doing that anyway. I don't know if that's directly tied to the sort of coronavirus challenge, but I think there's a sort of a bit of a bit of a push, a bit of an incentive. We always use quarterly goal setting for our executive team, but we've been more disciplined this cycle for OKRs, sort of circulating them and having them pre-read by the team. What else? The I mentioned the anonymous feedback bot in mm-hmm. Slack. So that's a pretty simple one. That was helpful. We were using 15.5 for certain members of the team in engineering. Um, and we've actually just hired a chief people officer and she starts on Monday. So that's going to be a fascinating onboarding. Yeah. Our first ever chief people officer is going to be fully remote. So it'll be interesting to see what she she has in mind. And I'm super excited to have her join. But I think it's more less about the specific tools, more about the operating system of the company, you know, the weekly all hands cadence, we added an extra 15 minutes to that. So it's now 45 minutes instead of 30 minutes. Uh, The quarterly kickoff, we took one of the all hands morning slots instead of having another meeting and just extended that to an hour and a half. Um, That went quite well, I think, and the team reacted very well. You know, we've got a sort of a, a regular suite of SaaS tools that I think more relate to how we run the business. Of course, Salesforce, HubSpot. Srini joined us from Amazon and I sort of borrowed some of, or I didn't borrow, I, I listened to him. I was like, look, you you know, you work two levels below Jeff Bezos. You, you were working at Amazon for 14 years. What were the best things? And the famous six-pager uh, that Amazon executives have to write, or actually any manager has to write when they enter a meeting and you know, no PowerPoints. It's been interesting to observe. Now, we're not doing that. We're not saying you have to write a six-page document or uh, write an essay. But I think borrowing a little bit of that logic has helped. And mm-hmm. then that's the sort of the balance between a PowerPoint and the power of writing. Um, and it's really interesting to see that coming from someone who's had experience at Amazon. 
I like how you call it the operating system of the company, which is kind of like a combination of the tools you're doing, but especially the processes. Has that something that's been important to you from the beginning? Well, I have to admit, I borrowed that term from my CEO forum. So uh, I'm in a CEO forum and I've been in it for about three years now. And that's been one of the most powerful things that I've done as a founder. The CEO forum that I'm in is a group of uh, no more than seven executives or seven CEOs. And we meet quarterly for two days. It's a lot of a time commitment and it's really a, a therapy session. It's the session where we are transparent with our financials. We're transparent with major issues within the company. And each CEO has an opportunity to present their business and a key member challenge and the other CEOs weigh in. And um, it's run by a lady called Bouja Cookman. And Bouja has really built this this forum. Uh, one of the first members was the Gail Goodman, the uh, founder of Constant Contact. And, you know, there's been huge companies that were started and executives that grew up through that. So I'm really honored to be part of it. And one of the things that we do in that CEO forum is to reference where we are in terms of company maturity in that operating system. There's a key slide that I think has been very powerful for me where you've got a visualization of where the company is on its trajectory into market leader and product market fit and sales and traction and brand. But then on the right-hand side of that same slide, there's a representation of the CEO's role within the evolution of a company. And as if you look at a founder at the very beginning, it's just one blob. It's the central nucleus, founder does everything, you know, payroll, HR, you know, Chad knows what I'm talking about. And then as you start to evolve, you start to get these other blobs or satellites around the CEO. And then as you go further and further, those blobs become bigger and more equal in size. And then eventually, as you become really successful and very scalable, the CEO can almost become one of the satellites themselves. So... It's really fascinating thinking about that, but you can only do that if you build an operating system to connect all those pieces together. And I think those have been really interesting discussions and, and areas. And, and, and anyone listening to this podcast, sort of thinking about you know founding a company or growing, I just think getting into that peer group with other CEOs and founders who are better than you is critical. I, I found it very hard because I've never had a job and I've never worked for anyone. And um, just putting myself in a vulnerable position, you know, I didn't really know that much about org chart design, for example, or, or some of these topics that we're talking about. And it was extremely rewarding to be in that forum with folks that have really done amazing things. And who else is going to tell you as a CEO? You know, who else do you talk to? You can't talk to your board members because the dynamics are slightly wrong. You can't talk to the other executives in the company there's really no one to talk to. So I think putting yourself in that environment has been really helpful for me at least. Yeah, I belong to a sort of similar group and I definitely agree with all of the benefits. And if you're not a CEO, there are also similar benefits to just having a, a peer group. So I know that there are a lot of sort of operations, people who are in similar groups together. 
just having a group of peers that you can be vulnerable with, no matter how sort of transparent and honest your company is and how collaborative it is, there's still value in being able to get an external perspective and to be honest and to be able to take challenges or crazy ideas and be able to put them out there and know that no you know you, it's not directly to the audience that if you if you get something wrong people are going to freak out absolutely and i think i wouldn't class myself as a, a technology founder in your category chad but i've always been very focused on products mm-hmm. and customers and have enjoyed designing the dashboards of the product and and to sort of be in a room with going back to the operating system and collaboration being in a room with people that have had more experience with building a collaboration system, I think is probably one of the biggest tests of a founder to sort of jump the gap from being a founder to a CEO. So that's been sort of interesting and really something that I've enjoyed and found very rewarding, but the the hardest. I'm actually reading a book, which um, one of the other CEOs in the group had suggested, which it might be good for the audience listening to this, The Trillion Dollar Coach about Bill Campbell. It's a really interesting one talking about certain granular things like how one-on-ones or managing the board. And it's, it's an amazing book and very interesting. You know, he coached you know, the likes of Eric Schmidt at Google and many of the top executives in Silicon Valley. And uh, it's just continually listening to collaboration and how to build that operating system. Do you remember what some of those initial collaboration challenges were when you were you know, making that move from founder to CEO and during that time where you know really rapidly you're seeing the company double every you know few quarters yeah um it's every quarter i mean i'm still uh, i'm sort of embarrassed of some of the things i did six months ago so I, nothing sticks out as like one moment <laughs> you know wasn't a revelation i suddenly became good or our team suddenly became good i mean i do feel like it's almost like a weekly thing um and that's the right attitude because if you are growing that quickly you are facing a lot of challenges. I think starting to separate the idea of how to build an executive team and trust has been probably one of the toughest ones for me because Mm -hmm. people used to say, it's almost a cliche thing, you know, people are the most important thing. And I do, of course, agree with that. And I think many people do, but really understanding the value of finding the right executive I'll sort of quote another book, you know, the Bill Collins, you know, good to great concept of putting the right person on the right seat on the bus. So that that concept has been the most important, I would say, trying to think about the idea of finding the right people in the right roles. And I'm obviously never going to stop doing that and always going to be making mistakes. But I think that became something that was really empowering because I was completely bootstrapped before and really didn't have any real traction for years. Um, I've you know waited a long time to get into this chance, um, into this, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, when I started selling on Amazon in 2003, it definitely wasn't the Amazon today. I mean, if you asked someone to come and work on the project, it would have been, well, you mean that book website, Amazon? Like, why is that relevant? And, you know, the Amazon earnings call was yesterday. And, you know, it's ridiculous how dominant it's become. So 
I mean, there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of momentum that's been built. Now we have you know 130 employees, and we're able to hire great people. So figuring out as the companies change the quality level and the talent level that we have access to and trying to be very good at getting that to line up. What I found hardest in the beginning, and it's an interesting one to discuss, is that you, you know, you have to trust people in the beginning and they are sort of the founding, you know, CTOs or founding first sales people. And, you know, those aren't the same people that are going to be there generally to, you know, 50, 100 million valuation. So it's that calibration of building a collaborative relationship with someone and balancing the fact that the business trajectory changes and you have to be willing to focus on the business and separate some of those relationships without destroying trust and values of being a good person, right? Like saying that, you know, you were great from this period to this period, but now we need someone else. That's really hard because it sort of counteracts core principles of building a relationship with someone. I've actually found it easier now because we've got into a position where we're able to retain talent and there's been more momentum. There was a period where you just have to make these really tough decisions. People who've helped you get to a certain tier are just not going to grow as fast as the company. And I think there could be a point in time where that's the case for you as founder, as CEO. And I think to be honest about that is a way to help you understand and foster a team of people who are also of that mindset. I think it's really difficult, but I think you can do it, or at least you can try. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really good point, Chad. The idea that, I mean, I've said that all the time. I've said, you know, is the test here, can I get from, you know, whatever the valuation is or whatever the revenue target is or headcount target is, And there's no guarantee that a CEO who can manage 50 people can do 500 people or even 100 people. And there are these breaking points and just being really vulnerable. Um, I have tried to borrow that concept, as you've just mentioned, and we do say that type of stuff in front of the, the company. And I do like sharing some of the things that I'm reading and learning to sort of highlight to the team that we're a company that is willing to learn and be coachable. And that's just a really fun part about business. I think it's, you know, if, you, if you've got a great idea and you've got that open-mindedness to continually improve, you know, the sky really is the limit. I think it's difficult though, you know, as you get more successful leaders in the company, there's more money, you know, the equity is worth more, the ego concept can come into play. A lot of these amazing principles that you see are are quite common, you know, ownership in leadership training and, you know, being able to park the ego at the door and put the company first. I have done more and more reading, more and more listening to podcasts like this. Hopefully we are offering value to someone listening to this and can improve. And I think just trying to do as much of that, it never stops. So the last time we talked, we also spoke about your goals for the year. And this is obviously a really interesting year because I think more than ever, goals are going to be subject to change. But the one that you said was of of focus for Takeometrics this year was proving success on other marketplaces outside of Amazon. So I'm curious, you know, in the last month since we spoke to you, how that's going, 
or has it changed at all? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great one. And I'm, I'm really happy to report on that because it's going well for a start. I mean, this is where I think it's really important. You know, this is a, a very, very tough time for so many different industries, so many different companies and so many different people. And, you know, it is important to be empathetic. But in the, in the world of e-commerce, it's pretty exciting. You know, we're going to see shifts in e-commerce that are really transformative. And one of them is that other channels are becoming more interesting and e-commerce is gaining more market share overall. So our project with Walmart is going really, really, really well. I can give you one example from one of our customers is Lego. And Lego is selling a lot of Lego on walmart.com. And it makes sense because Amazon has had supply chain issues and, you know, kids need Lego and families need Lego. Especially right now. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm really excited about the business model that we have because we have the data for $8 billion worth of transactions across all these different platforms. So we can see all of this happening. We can see people that sell cleaning supplies just absolutely take off. And we can see, unfortunately, some of them that aren't, uh, some of the categories that aren't. But as a company, you know, Takeometrics has always sort of been that business. It's the business that sits behind the marketplace and uses AI and mathematics to maximize performance. And we have a very privileged position to sit in. So I'm super excited about it and we had our board meeting and you know the first half of the board meeting was giving confidence to our board members that you know we aren't going to run out of money and you know we've extended our runway but this is a great time so the multi-channel was a big update and you asked me about targets for the end of the year put yourself in the shoes of a brand manager or a, a retail manager for a big brand they are readjusting and moving more and more money into Amazon and Walmart. So it's tough. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you've got to be sensitive and you can't say, look, this is a great time that everyone else is, is, is struggling because it's, mm-hmm. there's a sort of two-sided coin and, you know, some brick and mortar stores are, are really struggling. So I actually, you know, wanted to do some stuff around this. You know, when we look at Shopify and the fact that they've extended their free trial, we've got new pricing coming out. So we're actually going to do some stuff that can give back. And I want to come up with some marketing strategies around, you know, perhaps we can target and help brands that are more vulnerable through brick and mortar and to turn this tough situation into a really good one and help more people. You know, I was one of the first Amazon sellers and I was one of the customers and that's how this company started. So this whole situation is going to be good for us. It's more opportunity to be more valuable. And I think we are probably going to exceed our targets. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've tracked Shopify stock price. I know I've chatted with chat about Shopify, but I mean, they're going through the roof. And of course, companies like Zoom are as well. It's tough. At the same time, you see, you know, the, the US economy is going to go into depression and huge layoffs. And is the overall economy going to be consumer spending going to come down i think in the world of e-commerce it's super exciting and to kind of wrap up on your multi-channel question it's uh, highlighting that there are other places to buy other than amazon i actually bought home haircutting kit on buy on google mm-hmm. which was interesting you know there was none available on amazon and google shopping hasn't been a place where i've normally gone to but i've 
been aware of it because we're potentially launching some technology for them or with them for our customers. And uh, there's a new function called Buy on Google, which actually allows you to purchase without leaving the Google website. And in that sense, it's very Amazon-like. And I actually bought a hair, a hair cutting kit. It came to me and I didn't leave Google. And that excited me. That's like, wow, this is, this is cool. This, how many other people are doing this? And that's really our business model. Yeah, we've seen our change. You know, it used to be that we would just by default go to Amazon. But now because of different availability and ship times and all that stuff, we're doing more shopping around than we used to or finding other yeah. places where we can get it online. That's absolutely true. I think it's great. I mean, I, I love Amazon and, you know, we are very Amazon oriented, but our customer isn't Amazon. Our customer is the smaller, generally the smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've had a large challenge in fundraising because we're considered as this sort of Amazon platform tool or widget that sits on top of Amazon. But that was never our mission. Our, our mission is actually to level the playing field for the small guy. So to see another channel open up and Amazon not to have dominance is really powerful. I mean, Amazon is very, very dominant and it, it does squeeze its merchants. The fees Amazon charged when I started uh, were 15% and it was a really simple referral fee. And I remember thinking to myself, why would I ever pay Amazon 15%? Now they take close to 30% uh, or even higher than that. So as the years have gone by, Amazon's ratcheted up their fees. So there's a really high incentive for other channels to be there. And I feel like that's a good, good mission for us. We have a lot of engineers and a lot of data science folks and marketing and sales and our employees have options to go and work at a bigger company like Amazon directly. And in our recruiting process, we actually say, look, we are helping the businesses on Amazon who are flying blind, not Amazon. And uh, it's an interesting relationship between us and Amazon from that regard. Uh, we're doing things that they can't do. We're sort of the little fish that clean the, the, the gills of the massive whale. Um, they need us, but they're not us and vice versa. Question for either of you, really. Are these e-commerce platforms that are kind of industry agnostic, like Takeometrics or Shopify, doing so well because they're industry agnostic during an economic downturn and can kind of lean into whichever industry is doing well? Or does it specifically have to do with the fact that we're stuck at home and cannot go to brick and mortar stores? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think if you think about it mathematically, the market share of e-commerce of retail was around 12%. And that's really high right now, you know, maybe definitely over 50%. But you've got these sub trends in terms of category, like grocery is going absolutely gangbusters. Toys and games is going you know, wild. But, you know, apparel is struggling, or, or at least, you know, you're probably less likely to buy fashion clothes right now. And, or, you know, so it's the whole vision of Takerometrics, you know, Taker is a Japanese word for market price. And, you know, econometrics modeling is, is really the study of statistics and, and economic supply and demand. So it's, it's sort of, could you really create a scenario where, this actually plays out. It's like sort of an, an economist's dream of, of studying this shift of, you know, there's so many interesting things that are going to be in textbooks for the next hundred years, you know, 
you've got this supply side shock with China, where a lot of the stuff was manufactured that caused issues in Q1. And then you've got like this demand side shock because everyone was is now stuck at home. Now China's coming back online and there's more Amazon sellers than there's ever been before joining. And, you know, more signups on Shopify that they've ever had before because people are trying to find an outlet. So what I could say is just a, a really fascinating time to be alive, you know, just to see all of this happening. And we're really lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. I think anyone in data science and thinking about the data set that we have is really interesting to see where the flows are going. And Lindsay, I think that one of the ways that we'll know the answer to your question is what happens once the pandemic is over. So, you know, Shopify has seen the big boost because all these stores are trying to figure out how to sell online for the first time and needing to move to delivery and, and all those things. It will be interesting to see if those businesses continue like that or whether they'll seek to go back to the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah, totally agree with that. Well, I know that uh, you have a call uh, (laughs) to get to eventually, and uh, we really appreciate your time and you sharing being uh, really honest and transparent about the way things are going at Metrics, and I'm glad to hear that things overall are going well. So again, I'll remind everybody who's listening that, um, you know, Alistair is going to be back next month. So if you have questions for him about anything in this episode or any other or the future ones that we do with him, please uh, send those to hosts at giantrobots.fm. And Alistair, if you want to say again where people can uh, find you or follow along with you or get in touch with you directly. Thank you. And I want to say thank you very much, Chad. Glad to hear everyone say for ThoughtBot. Thank you, Lindsay, as well. It's been a pleasure. And it's a, it's a nice break to kind of reflect on some bigger things. And I like the fact that it's not video, actually. It's, it's no, no Zoom fatigue. And uh, it's actually one of the recommendations in one of the articles was to switch off the camera. And it, it has been really fun talking. And yes, the easiest way to connect with me would be through LinkedIn. So you can just search for me there or contact us through our website and one thing i will say is we are going to be hiring um, and picking things back up and i know it's a really tough time across all industries in boston and in other areas as well so yeah we'd love to hear from people and uh, really appreciate the opportunity so we'll link all of that stuff in the show notes which you can find at giantrobots.fm if you have questions or comments email us at host at giantrobots.fm you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. And me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.